Hello and welcome to episode 76 of What Most People Think. I'm Jeff Norcott and I am wondering, have we changed the rules for unlocking the country, right? Because at one point, it seemed to be quite simple. We were going to vaccinate the vulnerable and then it's sort of become a bit like the 12 days of Christmas, you know, where what we need to unlock the country is all the over 80s and the over 70s. Probably the over 50s, five more fucking months. Look, I have been, as a lot of you listen regularly will know, I've been on side with this lockdown broadly, but Jesus Christ, man, just stop moving the goalposts, you know? Stop saying, oh yeah, all we got to do is vaccinate fucking cats and statues and uh, <laughs> stuffed animals. Um, this is what most people think. This is the podcast that is coming at things from a, a slightly right of centre perspective, but with a variety of guests and this week we've got Owen Jones on the show. Now, some of you hold your horses, man. Don't get don't get angry yet. He responded. I made a WWE style call out for him to be on the show. Uh, he was man enough to come on my fucking show to come here in my manner, a left winger on my podcast. Um, but just to manage expectations, and maybe there will be some of you that are hoping that I climb into Owen, and you know, there's going to be no owning or. Do you know what I mean? Or eviscerating arguments. It's not that sort of podcast. As I think you'll know, you know, from when I had Marcus Brigstock on the show, it's not about digging people out. It's about, I'm just interested in what people think and why they think it. And I, having said that, I say it's not about digging people out. I think very early on, I dig, did dig Owen out for being a millennial. And my first question was a little bit uh, on the trolley side. But other than that, another expectation I've got to manage is that the sound quality from my end was not, Great, was not great because I had an issue with my microphone shortly before uh, the interview of Owen. So basically I was doing it on something. Do you remember those 9.99 microphones you get, those plug-in ones from Argos? Do you know what I mean? They just felt like they were fucking hollow. Uh, I was recording my end from one of those. So yes, there is going to be a slight irony here that the uh, the socialist did have a much more expensive uh, microphone than the capitalist but <laughs> but I've done everything I can to improve and boost the levels and I think it's in a listenable state uh, so do bear with it uh, just a shout out to the patrons we had somebody edit up their pledge this week to 10 pounds James Fowler James Fowler the Fowlers are you a notorious family James the youngest Fowler there James now James has got a brain on him he ain't gonna be getting in the family business we've got plans for young James there well, he's edited up to £10, and we had, a, we had a gig last week, and maybe James saw that gig with me, Francis Foster, and Leo Curse, and thought, fuck it, I'll throw Norcott an extra fiver. And there will be, you're in the VIP tier, James, so as well as another club gig we're going to have like that. So if you did just join up for that gig, we're going to have another club gig at the beginning of March. But there's also, for VIPs, whenever I do new material gigs, and they come around fairly frequently, um, you will have exclusive access to those, um, a cuss count. We do a cuss count, a weekly track of swearing trends on the show. Last week, there was 27. I mean, I was talking about the EU, so it's likely to be higher, I think. Um, there was 27 fuckings, 10 shits, 5 fucks, 3 pricks, and 2 clusterfucks. 2 clusterfucks in one in one episode. I mean, it was about the EU's vaccine rollout. So I think actually two clusterfucks is pretty low, which works out overall as 1.33 swears a minute. Uh, we had one Star Wars reference, one cricket reference, and no carry-on references. I'll have to pull my finger out, eh? Hey? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, my God. Was that ever okay? You know the way that Sid James used to laugh at women? You know, he was clearly in his late 50s and he was... Slapping the asses of women in their late teens. I mean, we sort of say now, oh man, that's a bit problematic. I mean, there must have been people. Uh, if you are listening to this, I'm not being, you know, particularly sensitive or 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 woke. But were there those of you at the time that thought that nah, sort of feels out of order? But you know, there just wasn't a cultural environment where you could say so. If so, you can confide anonymously in me at what most people think UK at gmail.com. Uh, just quickly before we get, because we, I want to devote most of the show today to the chat with Owen Jones. The GB News Boycott. Now, I don't know if you saw this. Uh, an organisation called Stop Funding Hate, which, I mean, immediately... Or no, is it called Hope Not Hate? But what they did was they tried to uh, 
get a campaign going where you would at your mobile phone operator and say to them that if you're thinking of advertising on GB News, then I'm going to like cancel my contract with you. First up, all right, it's all big talk. I remember back in the day, we all used to cancel our mobile phone contracts all the time, or at least claim to, and they keep giving us better handsets. But that was when handsets were 70 quid. You try and pull that shit when handsets are a monkey. Good luck. I'm not sure if these people really mean it. It's very easy to tweak this shit, isn't it? Um, hey, at Vodafone, just so you know, uh, if you do think about advertising on the platform of hate, GB News, I will uh, I will boycott you. I'll go, yeah. Well, look, the other way of looking at this is if they all advertise on there, you'll have fucking nowhere else to, <laughs> to go. So if I was these mobile phone organisers, I'd say, I'll tell you what, should we fuck them over from the other direction? Let's just all advertise here. Then none of us can have any harm done to us. And I should say this, right, before any, I'm with Free Mobile. Free Mobile, if you ever boycott some, anything, because a few ninnies on social media were trying to flex their, their muscles, I will, I will boycott you. You know, how can these people, these are the same people that are probably at the moment claiming that cancel, cancel culture doesn't exist. And then, and then they did try and defund, defund? Is it defund or defund? Defund. Uh, defund a news channel before it's even gone out. And I don't know if you saw that film, Minority Report, which is about sort of uh, people being arrested for crimes before they'd even done them. We're now in this sort of like science fiction future of woke cancel culture where, a new, I mean, just, you can't say this often enough, a new, they tried to defund a news channel that hasn't broadcast a minute yet. Now, I'm not saying that GB News, once it does kick up with people like Dan Wooten on it, yeah, there might be some of their content that, you know, tends towards a bit more of a right-wing perspective, a bit more of a populist perspective. But the other issue with these breaks is that... <laughs> the other issue with these breaks, right, is that they can't ever... They always seem to compare it to Fox News. I don't know if they think that makes them particularly intelligent, to, that, that they know we're just, we're just going down the road of Fox News. I don't know if you know, it's my theory, my theory. The Britain is... We're going to the Fox Newsification of British culture... But they can't think of any other alternative to a news channel. This just, if anything, it underlies the point, right? Underlines the point of how institutionalised news has become from a certain angle. That if you suggest any alternative, they just think, well, it's just going to be loads of uh, kind of uh, Christian right Mormon type fucking conservatives. Like, it might be, it might not. I do think you've got to let the thing breathe. And, and then, you know, there's something to be said about Fox News is where we only see the maddest shit from Fox News, don't, do you know what I mean? Like we see like a one viral clip a week where some kind of preacher is is telling people to pray the gay away, or that you know the uh, Jewish people have got their own space laser. Admittedly, that is bang out of order, and it's out of their content. I'm gonna, I don't watch all of Fox News content, but I'm gonna hazard a guess and say that that, that those are their weekly highlights of mental shit. I don't, I don't think like you know when you see goal of the month competitions, that is definitely. The obvious kind of uh, Tony Yaboa against Wimbledon, right? You know, I'm thinking a lot of the, <laughs> their top 10 coming down there, a few of them are just tap-ins, if you know what I mean. So, you know, it's not their usual stuff. And and, and this cancel culture thing, it's almost like what the left call gaslighting. On the one hand, they say it's not happening. On the other hand, there are examples everywhere. The writer Julie Bindell, some platform issued an apology for having her on their event in 2018 for something that she said in 2019. <laughs> and they issued an apology in 2020-21. Absolute mad bastards. Um, just before we get into the interview with Owen, a, a thank you, a thank you to my local Indian. As we all know now, in lockdown, food is just, it's life. It's all we've got, you know. Used to be Friday takeaway, then it's Saturday takeaway. Then you sort of find an excuse going, is the kebab shop open on a Monday lunchtime? So all we do is eat now. Oh, we do. Like, Justy is not only Snoop, Snoop Dogg has basically sort of uh, hypnotised the nation. That is all we do. But I had a really nice curry from the one near me recently. And um, But I'm, I think I'm going to have to downgrade from a jail phrase, man. <laughs> I said that so seriously. I just, I just caught a, a reflection of myself in the mirror, in the window as I said that. I think I'm going to have to downgrade from a jail phrase. I said, I said that like... I said that like a blowgun, I think I'm going to have to borrow against the house. I mean, it's not that serious, but this is from somebody. I used to be able to comfortably manage a vindaloo. Then I had to come down to a madras. I was a madras man for a long time in my curry career. Then Jao Frazee. I think I might have to go Rogan Josh, you know. 
I might have to go Rogan Josh. And, and where, where does it stop, man? From the glory years of the Vindaloo doing... I might even be a doppy as a bloke, you know, before the year's out. I think, I think that is sad. Or I step up my antacid game. I think the curries, you know, they have like a number of spices by the side of them, like one, two or three to let you know how spicy it's going to be. I think that going forward for middle-aged men like me, they need to have a number of Rennies. This is a two, <laughs> this is a two Rennie dish, Jeff. You're 44, mate. Think about it. Yeah, it's going to wake you up early in the morning. You don't want to be woken up by your ass. It's a terrible thing when your ass wakes you up. Uh, hey, it's six o'clock. I know it's only six, but um, you had the fucking Joe Frazee, man. We need to uh, we need to spend a bit of time, <laughs> a bit of time sitting on the porcelain. A uh, quick fuck you to my eyesight, which is now so bad, which is now so bad. I was walking my dog the other day, and I, I think I've mentioned this before. She is a she is a, a, a shit terrorist. She shits like supremely, like four or five shits. Sometimes deliberately waits till I've used the last bag and then shits again. But the other night. She did a shit, and I kind of lost sight of it a little bit. Bent down, had the old um, poopy bag over the hand. Poop, does anyone else call it a shit bag? Over the hand. And scooped up the shit and realised that the shit was frozen. Then realised that even though it is incredibly cold, um, that it hadn't. It would never have had enough chance to freeze. And then realised that essentially I'd picked up another dog's shit. Okay, enough talk of uh, dog shit. Let's get into the chat with Owen Jones. So, welcome to What Most People Think, Owen Jones. Hello, how you doing, buddy? You you took up the challenge. I don't know if you'd have heard it, but I was putting out the challenge in a sort of WWE wrestler style saying for a couple of weeks Owen Jones if you can hear me because I hadn't heard back from you that point but you have you have taken up the challenge I can be pretty shambolic and there's no getting around it not it wasn't I wasn't avoiding it I'm just occasionally a bit disorganized yeah no in my mind Jones was on the run that's what I was thinking I I know but I kept doing it I kept doing this I always get into these little guilt spirals I don't know if you ever do this where I'm like ah I've not replied to that message and then I don't then I don't reply, and then I feel even worse. And that makes me avoid it more because I associate it with a negative feeling. So in my head, I'm like, oh, God, I have still haven't replied. That's really bad. So I do that a lot with lots of things, and then I just things just get worse. I mean, that is, that is the most archetypal millennial sentiment I think I've ever heard. Like, <laughs> only a millennial, millennial. Well, I mean, only a millennial could complicate replying to a message to that degree and go through all these levels of existential angst. It's very, I'm absolutely defined by existential angst, as you can tell. You're, you're complex people. I mean, I thought, I thought, you know, obviously, you know, there'll be people listening to this that would, will want us to really go in it headlong, but it's not, it's not going to be like that. I just thought I'd rather start off with a nice, easy, easy question, which is, were the Corbyn years a massive mistake, which the Labour Party will never recover from? I just, you know, just an easy... You know, just Ooh, bam. I like that, Jeff. It's like gonna go straight for the gut. Bam! In he start goes. For 10, start for 10. But but the reason I say it like that is I got the pre-impression when we met a few months ago for a thing for the Guardian that you're in a more reflective mood these days. And how do you look back on those years now? And um, so I think the way I look at it is why did you become leader? And people keep forgetting that, is because all the other parts of Labour had kind of run out of any ideas. Mm. By that point in Labour's history, there was a case of all the other bits, the Blairites or the kind of more centre ground people in the Labour Party, they just didn't, they just didn't really, and a lot of the more savvy ones said that. They were like, we just didn't have any ideas, didn't have anything to say. And obviously Jamie Corbyn did. And I, I would say that obviously there were lots of reasons. I mean, Labour didn't win in 2017 or 2019, I know that. The, the catastrophe, and it was a total catastrophe of 2019. People have to remember 2017, when it did look for a while that he could become prime yeah. minister. People, genuine people on the right spoke about it at the time for every chance. And why was that? And it was because, even though I know it's like erased from history, and we have to pretend it didn't happen, is a lot of people heard things like the rich should pay a bit more tax. Yeah. Maybe the railway should be run by the public. And they thought, fair enough, quite like mm. those ideas. But like you say, there is this issue with the Labour Party at the moment, which is, you know, there's, there's, we always knew that Labour, 
uh, were enthralled to the unions, right? Tories are enthralled to big business and the Lib Dems are enthralled to the campaign for real ale or something like that, right? We always knew where we stood. But then you get this situation where Labour then suddenly have this, this membership base that they like to talk about, you know, sort of waving their kind of membership dick around. But there, there is a there is something that goes with that, is that you have to sort of throw them red meat. And I, I wonder, you know, this sense, and then people on the left have spoken this about, about this, about being Labour being snookered, where the power of the membership and the trade unions and their kind of metropolitan voter base, that's a hard sort of trilogy of people to reconcile, isn't it? Yeah, but I think the union base is important because for that reason, because it keeps Labour anchored, because the difference between big business and unions is big business are obviously big corporate, uh, big corporate titans that are accountable to shareholders and, and rich people. And unions are democratic organisations that represent six million mm. people like plumbers and shopkeepers and uh, care workers and nurses and you know, the people we applauded every Thursday in the first lockdown, the pillars of our society. Speak for yourself, mate. I wasn't, I did the first one, but I thought, all right, come on, let's not. <laughs> the whole point of unions is for Labour to go, a lot of Labour members inevitably are going to be relatively middle class. That's just a fact. That's just how party memberships work. And a union gives a counterweight because it it, it forces them to be in the lives of electricians uh, you know, I've been supporting recently a strike by British gas workers who were represented by uh, GMB, which is one of the main unions. And British gas workers, some of whom did not vote for the Labour Party, I should say, in the last election, but they're union members who are getting screwed over and Labour has to listen to them. They have to listen to them when, in the middle of a pandemic, these people go into people's homes, risking their health. They're all being fired and then rehired on worse terms. And these are often people who voted for leave. And I bet if you went through and did a vote of British gas engineers, I bet most of them voted to leave the European Union. I would not be surprised. Um, and those are the people Labour has to listen to. So I think that's important because it, it stops Labour becoming... What Labour became too much in the new Labour period was you'd get middle... Like, I'm not using middle class as derogatory. I'm just saying you have to represent... Mate, if there's one just... podcast you can do that on, by all means use it as a... Just use it as a fucking <laughs> ad hominem attack. <laughs> well, you've joined the middle classes now, so you can't... But look, the, 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 the thing is... I can see the artwork in the back of your shop, mate. Let, let's not get... That's into... my mate. That's our... That, our mate is a photographer... Actually, see, having, um, having a mate who's a photographer is a classic sign. Yeah, fine. Uh, I don't know right. any photographers, mate. You know, you know those I'm not going to deny I'd be middle class. They're fine. Tri you know those yourself. gas workers you were talking about? I know all of them. New Labour became, you got people who left university, obviously Oxford, Cambridge, one of the top universities. They would often become a special advisor, work for a think tank, and then get parachuted into a seat they never heard of. Yeah. That's a problem. That's a problem. And you end up, you know, like take David Miliband, he, when he stopped being an MP, apparently the contact rate, that's how many doors had been knocked on, yeah. was 0%. So he, See, both him and his brother was sort of one of these waves that were parachuted into northern uh, constituencies, weren't mm -hmm. they? So what was it? It was, it was something weird like Doncaster and... That, he, was, he was Sal Shields, yeah. And, he was and that's so the problem. You but need, that, that and you need to mean, work class people in politics in the unions. That's what the unions should do. They should they should parachute in British gas engineers, for yeah. example. No, I don't. You know, like the, the labour movement, I have less of a problem with. I suppose, I suppose what I see as a problem in the labour party is you've got like you've got a PLP that are probably to the left of the country when you look at some of the sort of more vocal mm. um, politicians, but certainly on kind of like cultural affairs, but and certainly to the left of the leadership as it presents right currently and then you've got an activist base which is you know certainly in terms of momentum which is quite significantly to the left of a lot of countries so i, I think the trade union thing is less of, a, of an image issue in terms of winning back working class voters than this sense that you know when we, when we see the labor conferences and people see all the palestinian flags and you know and they see the some of the issues that seem to matter to the activist base a lot of people look in on that and and they don't feel that it, it relates to them anymore well, I mean, I think if people think that Labour conference is just people waving Palestinian flags... Then no, no, I'm not saying that it's, it's, it's just that. But like, I think people did... They waved that for two minutes during a speech about Palestine, which makes sense. But, but when you see the stalls outside, it, do, it does seem that, you know, there's that old cliche about, you know, they're more interested in the West Bank than Warrington. Um, have, you, have, you, have, you, have you ever been? What, Labour Party conference? Yeah. Do you think I'd be welcome? 
I go to Tory party conference every year normally. On, on, see, this thing there. about us right wingers, we learn, we, you know, we don't. That's not true. It was full of right, full of right wing hacks. Here. Uh, you got Labour Party conference. They have Sun journalists. They have Daily Mail journalists. There, loads of right wing people go to. No, but there's no equivalent. You know the Never Kiss the Tory T-shirt. You you don't have a Never Kiss. I can't the wear. Tory. I can't wear that T-shirt. And be honest. Bet you can't, mate. I'm not surprised. And the rest. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, basic Labour. Party conference, obviously people, what people normally talk, and this is what annoys me. Okay, this is what winds me up. I'll give you an example. Okay. You'll get people, the sort of person who goes, oh, people on the left care more about, um, um, say, foreign aid that feeds foreign kids. Why don't we, instead of that, why don't we look after our own kids? And then you go, all right, then let's increase benefits. And they go, oh, no, scroungers. That's the problem. I actually think people, the people who care. So if you get people like you talk, you talk about cultural issues, cultural issues. I don't know trans rights. I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point. People go, oh, that's all the left talk about. Rah rah rah. Why is it that I'm writing, I'm doing podcasts about the British gas strike. I'm going on their online on British gas online rallies. I don't see these anti woke people who go on about all the time, go on about how the left only care about identity politics. They're not the one going on strike pickets for low paid workers saying that they should be paid properly. That's why I always think that's a nonsense. Of course, I care about minority issues, and you should do, but you should also, but I also spend a lot of my, what are the articles I write about? Bad housing. Uh, I write about the lack of secure jobs. Uh, I look at, I write about low pay. I write about the health service. Those are things I care about. No, no I, I hear you to an extent on being characterised in a certain way. Like, I mean, I, you know, for people, their perception of me is that I'm always wanging on, you know, I'm always saying that I'm not on TV enough. I've never said that. It's true. I'm not on TV enough. Like, <laughs> you know, you talk about the trade union stuff and that, that seems to be a focal point for you at the moment. I think one thing, record that I thought we could set straight with you is one of the criticisms that you get is that you're just this middle class kind of like lad. You, you your, it seems that your background was a bit mixed, right? Your old man was a trade union man, like my dad. I think we share that. Or the, but your mum was a university lecturer. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So my dad's... Sort of between the precipice of those two worlds there. But if you know what I mean? Those are like... Yeah, my dad... I mean, my dad was... Um, yeah, my dad grew up in Merseyside. His mum was a nurse. His dad died at sea. And he was... He worked for Sheffield Council. Uh and he lost his job along with 800 other people in the mid-90s. He was a senior shop steward uh, who uh, negotiated and they lost their, they lost their jobs, all of them. Um, and then he was unemployed for a couple of years. Uh, and my mum is, she was a lecturer at Salford University in computing. So yeah, I'd always call myself middle class. Uh, I grew up in Stockport near the centre though with mm. people, you know, the people, I, the reason I know I'm middle class is that my life was so different growing up compared to the friends I grew up with. And the friends I got, so the primary school I went to, I was the only boy to go to, to do A-levels, let alone go to university, more went to prison. And then, you know, a, the, a, a lot of the people that, and this is where I got a lot of my education from, I suppose, about all my anger about the way that the country's run. You know, a lot of the people I grew up with, I remember, you know, I, a guy at school who wore school uniform at weekends because he couldn't afford any other clothes. Uh, I used to see him on my paper round in his school uniform on a Saturday. Uh, you know, people who, who grew up in very overcrowded housing people who got you know one of my best friends and it's quite tragic now because i see his facebook profile and he's just sharing tommy robinson videos and the like uh but we used to get drunk every saturday and his 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 dad's you know left them when he was a kid and he was brought up by his by his mum he left school with e's and d's um but his life was you know often pretty hard lot harder than mine was. What I find interesting is you talk about some of the hardships that you saw and the difficulties that people people face. I probably saw a lot of the same stuff, but I guess it's a personality type. Is that your instinct was to think about the state and culpability in that way. And my instinct was often, you know, obviously I was aware of people in difficult circumstances, but to think about people's own role in those situations. You know, I, found, I can even remember as a nine-year-old kid just being you know, just seeing people, what people were spending money on. And, and but, but that is that always been an instinct for you is not to hold the person accountable, but to hold the situation accountable? Well, I think like we've all got, our, we all can make choices and we've all got agency. But if you are born in a privileged background, it doesn't really matter what you do. You always have a safety net that will protect you. Like take drugs. Loads of middle-class people take drugs growing up. 
Let's yeah. just be honest about it. They take loads and loads of drugs that are likely to be stopped and searched by a police officer to be found to have drugs on them and then face have a criminal conviction that can have a massive say over what happens to them for the rest of their lives in terms of getting jobs and all the rest of it. That's just a fact. You know, if you're a black guy in London, you're far more likely to be stopped and searched, even though government evidence, the government research shows that black people take drugs less than white people. And yet, if you are found with cannabis or cocaine, and you're, you're sorry, you're more likely to be stopped and searched on suspicion of cocaine and cannabis. And if you're found with cocaine and cannabis, you're far more likely uh, to be charged if you're black. Um, and I just think that just sums it up. I think the thing is, we all start with odds either stacked in our favor or against them. And of course, we we all make mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes growing up. It's not society that makes us make mistakes. But the difference is you're far more likely to suffer lifelong consequences, uh, for, you know, for mistakes if you're poorer. I mean, the thing about money, take money, it's like this idea, the classic idea that poor people are poor because they don't spend their money right and they spend it on booze and fags and whatever else. And actually, anyone who's a specialist in debt, my old mate used to be the chief executive of Credit Action, also grew up in Stockport. And the point he always made to me is the poorer you are, the better you are at managing your money because you have to be. And actually, it was often the, the, the people they dealt with who were middle class, who ended up in debt problems, were people who were just gratuitously wasting money in, in the most lavish way. That wasn't the case with poorer people or zero-hour contracts, quite hard to manage to budget your money if you don't know how much you're getting from week I, to I, week. I think it's, it's worth saying this point. Like, I suppose, you know, what you're talking about is that kind of feckless characteristic that people apply is that people spend money, fags, booze, big televisions, Range Rovers and, and the like. Um, I, I don't think most people see it that way, but I guess what they're doing is projecting themselves into if things were tight for me, which things would I not be spending money on? You know, it's not it's not even to say that I you don't understand why someone would still want to drink, smoke, yeah, but... have their nails done. But if, if things are if things are really tight, I guess that is what people are, are, are querying at that point. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, like children's charities will always make the point that they constantly work with parents who skip hot meals to make sure their kids are fed. These aren't people who are just wasting money. I mean. You know, I mean, it's this idea, the widescreen, I always remember this. I always find this hilarious, the widescreen TV thing. You can't buy any of the TVs, the widescreen TV. No, no, you're right, that has changed. But there was once upon a time, right, and this is one of the things about having lived on a council estate, is that, you know, I read the Times and I read the Guardian and I read about those cliches. But I also know people that are involved in benefit fraud. I also know people like that. So when I remember particularly around, you know, during the coalition years, people sort of saying, you know, benefit fraud's a myth. And one of the things they bring up is only 0.7% of, uh, uh, of, of benefit is claimed fraudulently. And I would always think like, yeah, that, that's because people are good at it. Like, that's not, that's not like, if, if a copper stands behind, beside a hall of cocaine, they say, we seized a thousand tons of cocaine you'd then be thinking about how much else got through okay just briefly i'm interrupting the chat of owen jones there i don't know man as he said anything that's made you triggered can right wings get triggered by left wingers is triggering is triggering non-binary i don't know man i don't know but i hope you're finding it an interesting chat um, just say a quick hello to a new patreon here we have got henna's the ebbs fleet fan henna's the ebbs fleet fan uh the ebbs fleet fan i think is that singular like just it's just henna's these days i mean i say that as an afc wimbledon fan we that was a cheap low shot uh and judge jules if that is the judge Jules, then i cannot tell you what an honor that is as a fan of dance music and in particular uh trance music but but welcome to the patreon community you know there are obvious benefits i'm, I'm gonna upload some archive stand up i think on thursday uh, as i say there's gonna be another club gig coming there'll be new material gigs articles but we also we're just keeping it ad free all right because look everyone's got to earn their money i've chose to go the patreon way so that we don't have interruptions like this you know the podcast adverts that are like bing bong are you losing cupboard space? <laughs> are you losing cupboard space? Well, let me introduce you to a new service. It's called If In Doubt, Chuck It Out. That's right. At if In Doubt, Chuck It Out, we come to your house, your very own storage space account manager. 
He'll be wearing full PPE and he will help you make the difficult decisions about which clothes you can't wear anymore. Have you got too fat? Our account manager will be straight with you. If if in doubt, chuck it out. Bing bang. Do you know what I mean? Like these news services that you think they're they're sort of tech dreams that last for about a week. So we don't have to have those adverts there. Uh, I'm aware that the chat with, with Owen is, is is fairly on the serious political side. So I thought we'd just do a quick story in the middle here. Uh, I don't know if you saw this in the Guardian comment section. This is an article in the Guardian comment. This is the headline. The phallic necktie is an outdated symbol of white male rule in New Zealand's parliament. <laughs> it's fucking... They actually made that a headline. I don't know. Is, is that kind of hook... People like me that are going to get outraged about it. I just think somebody actually wrote the article. That sentence was in the article and it was about whether or not, you know, they continued to make neckties mandatory for male politicians in New Zealand's parliament. And they decided to do it. You know, look, I'm not a fan of wearing ties myself. But it is one of those things where you think some people are so politically sensitive that they start seeing shit that just isn't there. Do you know what I mean? Like, like one, like you're seeing... You're seeing somebody wear a tie. You're seeing a phallic symbol. I'm thinking you're not seeing enough dick <laughs> in your life. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm thinking you're a bit starved for <laughs> a bit starved for sausage if you're just looking at a tie and seeing a dick. The phallic necktie. I've never thought about it. what a weird penis that would be. You could well, I mean, if you could wrap it around your neck, you'd be doing all right. But. Yeah, the phallic is an outdated symbol of white male rule. Look, man, when I think of the necktie, I think of uh, I think of barman at the Rotary Club. I'm not <laughs> not sure anybody. Really, I mean, you think about like the richest people in the world now. Fucking Steve Jobs with his turtleneck. Fucking Kanye. Do you know what I mean? Like all, all these, you know, the, the new style billionaires. I don't think any of them wear neckties. That I would I would argue that a person that wrote this article is way, way more kind of like cock centric than, <laughs> than anyone who's making rules in the New Zealand's parliament. So, uh, I, I think that, you know, I think in response to this article, we should, we should, uh, there should be a new commemorative phallic necktie, which is literally like a photo of a big, massive dick, uh, <laughs> on a necktie. There you go. There, there's your next thing to write an article about love. As we as we're talking here, I wonder what is like your relationship with, with with money. You know, like, do you like it? Do you like the feeling of getting paid well for things? How how much money do you like to have to feel comfortable? You know, I mean, you don't necessarily. So the one thing that I so the, my one not the one thing I always find impossible to talk about is money. So I get what I'm given. I will never negotiate a fee. I've never raised a fee in my life, as in asked, dude. I, think. I can't do it. I just physically cannot talk about money. Let me negotiate for you. I'll take a cut. We'll both be winners. I've got an agent, obviously, deals with my box, but otherwise, I just get what well, I, you know. Then, then they do that. So you do have someone that does that for you. You, you course, every 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 author every author has an agent who who obviously on on their behalf. Do you? So you had that book, Chavs, which came out in was it twenty eleven. 2011, yeah. And that was a commercial success. You know, it's a critical and commercial success. Mm -hmm. Has that been something that set you up quite a lot going forward? Because you mentioned getting out of debt in your late 20s. Was that because of the yeah. book? And is that, is that yeah. giving you freedom yeah. to make other decisions going forward? You know, because that's, I suppose, what a lot of people try and do in comedy is have that big hit, which then then you can start to show artistic scruples. <laughs> yeah, I guess so, yeah. I mean, after, you know, I'm, I'm obviously much luckier than than... The most people who live in this country, of course, I am. And um, I mean, obviously, I work for the Guardian. When I write books, you get. I mean, I didn't to begin with. Chavs wasn't a big advance because obviously, I, you know, that was for a small radical publishing company. Uh, I mean, it was whatever they could spare at the time, probably. Um, but yeah, obviously, that did a lot better than I when than anyone expected. I mean, I didn't. It got rejected that book by every publishing house in the country, pretty much. And I remember my agent emailed me with the subject line was a chink of light and this small publishing company Verso took it on and it was unexpectedly a bestseller, um, which I didn't expect at all. I, you know, I thought I'd be lucky if it gets a review uh, and I didn't, you know, I wrote it because I was passionate about it and, you know, I wanted to raise issues that I care about. It's the only reason I do anything. And 
Um, but yeah, obviously that gave me, you know, when I also then, I started working for The Independent uh, in 2012. I mean, I didn't get a lot for that. I was on 20 grand a year working for The Independent. And the reason for that is I couldn't negotiate. I couldn't negotiate. I just was incapable of talking about money. So I didn't ask. That's an interesting thing. That's a really genuinely interesting thing to find out. I mean, one of the, one of the questions I'm always interested in when I speak to like proper lefties is, is again, I'm not going to put total figures on it, but I'd imagine that there was a year or period where you might have gone into like a higher tax bracket, right? Now, yeah. is when you hand over that money, right? Like, obviously, someone like me, selfish, venal Tory, out for himself. When I hand over that much tax money, as a part of me goes, you know, like the dog in uh, Dastardly and Muttley, I'm like, fuck it, sort of, you know, there's a part of me sort of spitting about it. Is there not a part of you that it, does it not even trigger a slightly, this is my fucking money? You know what I mean? I own this. Mm. I made this whole thing no. happen. No, because I would not be a writer without an education system in this country, which... Obviously, I'm entirely comp educated. Yeah. I was raised by the comprehensive education system, and without 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 a healthcare system that brought me into the world and made sure I was healthy, yeah. uh, without uh, an education system, including teachers who inspired me to write, I was inspired to write by the support of my teachers, including at primary school. You know, I remember that my 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 school was in the bottom five percent by stats results in the country, mm. and I had a teacher called Miss Button. And and she, she had a roll doll or something. That sounds like the most teachery fictional. Teacher. <laughs> she always had a little guitar. I remember. She always. Wait, I still remember all. The, I still remember the songs. And she. Uh, I remember once she what she tried actually. She. I was. I, I wanted to be a fiction author. Some say already am we. And she tried to get. Um, she she tried to get the Guardian. She sent stuff I wrote to the Guardian to see if they would publish it. They didn't because they probably had more sense back then than they do now. But they did, but at the time, um, you know, so th what I mean is I rely on, yeah. uh, we are all a collective product. I am, for good or for ill, I am a collective product of my education and the country in which I live. And that that country literally invested in me. They invested oh, I, in I, me. I, I, I agree. Now, now I do, then you do well, they get, in response, they get a cut of what they invested in. That's how you should see your education. 40%. They bought a stake in you, and now they get their stake back. I owe oh, now, now. I mean, I want that money to be spent better than it is by the government because obviously, but just, but just if we drill down to the principle of levels of taxation, you know, like the higher rate, forty percent, right? Yeah, forty percent above a certain amount. People always yeah, get yeah, that but wrong. then, but also national uh, class fours and stuff go up. Yeah. So you do end up with a marginal rate. That I mean, it, there is. It feels like a bit of a piss take at some point. You go because I agree with everything you said there about the way that a country creates a bedrock. A frame, okay, a here we go. Do you, do you have? Do you have? Do you? Do you? Have you got Netflix? Yes. You pay a subscription fee to Netflix. Yes. Okay. You also pay a subscription fee to live in a society which provides you. I am totally down system, with that. But an education system. Is. Law and order, uh, infrastructure you can use. Like, 40, you have to pay for it. 40, though. 40. It's the same. Yes. Should be higher. Should be a lot higher. Oh, this is... Yes. How, how, how high do you think the higher rate of tax should be? Uh, well, I mean, in other countries, which are richer and more prosperous than our own, like Sweden and Norway, significantly yeah. higher. Well, I would do what, what Labour did in like, election. I would say the top 5% should pay more money, which is what Labour suggested. And I would have... Uh, what was that? What was that? It, what they proposed was uh, to lower forty-five percent, so it's everything above eighty thousand. Yeah, and then have. So that's like heads of year now, London schools. And then good. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's the top five. It's the top five percent of of yeah. people who earn money, and then to have a uh, fifty percent for everyone who earns more than one hundred and twenty grand or so. Well, that's totally reasonable. That means you get to keep half of everything above. 120,000. Just it's always like this is what I love about speaking to proper left wing people is I just realized that they, we, it's just a DNA thing. It's like you say something like you get to keep. I'm like, well, it's mine. It's mine to be honest. But who do you? Yeah, I know, your just, starting point seems to be that the state owns it and they're but well, the state owns it. It's just it's just you you get you pay in and you get back. And if you yeah. want to live in a society in which you know in which there is an education system and a healthcare system and infrastructure 
you can't pay, you can't watch Netflix unless you pay for Netflix. You can't afford to, you can't live in a civilized society unless you pay for it. I'm not an, an Amazon Prime man. You, you see, you think you can get me this Netflix thing. There's a lot better stuff. It's far more male oriented. I've maybe. got Amazon, I've got Amazon Prime. What am I watching? We're watching, what are we watching at the moment? Oh yeah, because that's what we're watching The Handmaid's Tale on. Oh, it's grim. Mate, see, this is the thing about you lefties. You're always doing serious stuff. That, I thought you were going to say, I'm watching The Boys. There's loads of violence. Attack is something watching. But no, Handmaid's Tale. Handmaid's Tale is really, really it's too, I mean, it's very violent. Right, at thing. the heart of it is a feminist sort of dystopian narrative. Um, I, I, you know, your podcast um, at the moment, which is launched recently, and you did the sensible thing of having loads of episodes recorded and you did it in a very professional way. Uh, you are speaking to a few people on this podcast who might surprise people like Peter Hitchens, Peter Oborn, basically people called Peter who aren't really right wing anymore. Um, Piers Morgan. Piers Morgan. And is is there a part of you this year? I mean, like you're what, like 36 now or something? I, all right, don't rub it in, mate. But with the bruising Brexit years, you know, and a lot of the, the bile and the, um, the unpleasantness, did you emerge? Because when I met you for that thing for The Guardian, I just got the sense of a person that didn't want to fight as as much, that wanted to talk but didn't want to fight. Is that where you find yourself? I think the thing is, I actually don't like doing it. Um, the thing, I think often people have this view of me because of, say, Twitter, that, oh, he must be really aggro. Imagine going to the pub with him, he'd just be like, and I don't. A lot of my friends aren't political for a start, um, or um, if they are political, I have very different views from, or, you know, they're not like raging lefties. Um, and a lot of the time, I don't like it. I don't, don't like. I feel like I feel passionate about what I believe in, and I feel like given my platform, I've got to defend it. But I don't like it. I don't. Some people like the cut and thrust of it. They like these big arguments. I hate it. I find it depressing. Uh, I find it tiring. And a lot of the time, I'm like, why am I even doing it? I prefer to go and have a nice pint with someone, and I don't argue in real life. I, j- I just generally like to avoid arguments with people that's what I, I don't... Sort, of, sort of thought because you know i i sort of you know had some sort of public profile and i was i was 40 at the time you know like i was quite older and then i was thinking about what the age you were when you, when you wrote that book you sort of like become a proper full adult in the cut and thrust of all of this this crossfire is is there a part of you that sometimes thinks oh i wish i'd never got involved and i don't mean yeah. I, mean, I think like you're 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 a, very, a fascinating political commentator but do you ever think about that easier life like in stockport just doing something always out, always out public eye i always get this rose centered view of like being a teenager my mates were around were just having a drink skipping through mtv channels i remember doing that a lot uh, and like not having responsibilities i hate that idea of uh, and not having to care. I remember, like, when I got, without getting all heavy, when I got beaten up by a Nazi who went to prison and doing the trial and stuff, the trial's quite funny. <laughs> I said this the other day, it's still quite funny. There was a funny bit. There was funny bits, because you should always look for funny yeah. bits when terrible things happen. I don't know. Because uh, they brought his mate in as a character witness, <laughs> and they were like, do you, w-? they must have rehearsed this. They're like, do you, is this a trustworthy man? Uh, and he went, yes, absolutely. In fact, I would trust him so much that if I had an attractive girlfriend and I left him chatting with her and then I went to bed, I would trust him not to sleep with her. And I just remember that. It's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. I was like, that's your level of trust. But what I was trying to say is... Did he, did he watch Pulp Fiction the night before with Vincent Vega taking out Uma Thurman and just got some idea? Maybe it was that. <laughs> but when I was going through all of that and I kept having Tommy Robinson types... Because normally what happens, I never get any aggro in real life. People yeah. always come up, they're always very nice. I'm sure there's people walking past me going, he's a dick, yeah. but they don't say it. Uh, that's not an invitation to your listeners to start doing that, by the way. But they generally, people, I get sometimes people come up to me and go, I don't agree with a lot of what you say, but, you know, like, yeah, and then yeah, say something I get, nice. I get the same, yeah. Or they get me, give me a pint, which is always very welcome. But... Uh, when I started like around Westminster when I was doing my job and obviously I was getting like these Tommy Robinson people coming up sh- shouting all sorts of like surrounding me and mobbing me and trying to spit me spit in the face and punch me I was like this is hassle <laughs> what I find about it is what because sometimes I often trend on Twitter for like and I'm like and I'm like oh, God, what am I trending about now sometimes I can't even work it out yeah. what's funny about it so like for example this week I went good morning Britain it was about patriotism and as it turns out, I am patriotic and and my view of patriotism is different from, you know, I, I, that was the point. We all have different, mm. what, what we're proud of and what we're not proud of is we've all got our things. 
But, you know, I, I made the point that I think it's more patriotic to make sure your country's kids are fed. I think that's more patriotic than putting a flag behind you yourself on a zoom call which anyone can do uh it's just I, I wonder who that could be related to there. i'm not saying i'm just saying <laughs> it shows more it shows you know what it, and often patriotism is defined by symbolism rather than how can you make people in your country happy and their lives better but you what? say that though i mean like symbols are important when you talk about you not... know, lgbt the the, the ever-expanding acronym and and things like that you can't discount symbolism on one side i'm not discount i'm not i'm not that yeah. wasn't discounting it but they I'm matter just, because they stand for something don't they? i'm saying it's more meaningful and it's yeah. harder anyone can do something symbolic not everyone can do things which like marcus rashford i think what he's done what's more patriotic than what he's done his campaign to mm. feed to help short that you know von, poor kids in this country are fed but what then i'm suddenly trending and what happens is it's really funny because i've been around for a decade and obviously, if I think of all my columns, TV and radio appearances, what you do is you you basically amass loads of different groups who have a massive grudge against you. Mm. So obviously, a lot of people on the right, can't, you know, I am their living embodiment of just the, a massive dickhead. They hate, they and they love it. It's like an anti-fandom. It's like they enjoy the process of, of hating me and they hate everything about me. They hate the fact that I look like Macaulay Culkin. Uh, they hate the fact they think, oh, he's this gobby little, what is he's on TV, get him off. They love to do it. They, they, get, they spend a lot of time. Some of them spend a lot of time in their lives clearly doing yeah. that. And then for example, I mentioned the trans thing. Anti-trans people are the most obsessive people I've come across in my life. They'll pile in and then there'll be various other groups like people, for example, who, um, angry with me because I took anti-Semitism seriously. They're like, he's a traitor, he helped. And they all just jump on. And then it's just every single group going, this is an excuse for me to do my two minute hatred uh, of my grudge against this absolute- Well, yeah, I suppose what you have is like, you, know, you have a back catalog now. Yeah, <laughs> and they go through and they amass them. So they end up like, they've almost got like this little book and then they see me trending. And then I do that, I'm like, this is just, it's literally just, I've, I've got to the point where I realised, I mean, when I got started getting chased by Tommy Robinson fans, I realised like I'm literally a revenue stream because what they do is they get their mobile phone and they film you. And yeah. as they're filming you, they get people to pay them on PayPal. And because I was like, for them, I was like this big catch. So they were like, yeah, he's got Jones. And then they start paying them on PayPal. So it's like a, like a bit of woke among go then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They, anyway. Look, man, I, I, you know, look, I make a joke. Being chased, that, that to me is... I, honestly, I'm tougher than a lock. I just want to double back to, to, to something there, you know, the trans thing. We're legally obliged to talk about the trans thing. And again, these, these are things that I'm curious about, about you. I'm not asking this for the audience as such. But when there are certain left-wing radicals, and these are people who are, who are anxious about the status of the word woman. You know, when you get like big corporations talking about people that have periods instead of women or people that have babies instead of women. Um, when you get people that you used to be maybe fans of or firebrand radicals, then you see them on the different side of the argument from you. Does, does it not give you cause to, to reflect on what it is that they're, they're worried about, i.e. that something is being eroded, an identity that was, you know, a protected identity that was hard fought for? I mean, that, there was this whole thing recently when Joe Biden uh, did those executive orders on LGBTQ rights. Mm -hmm. And the top trending trend that day in Britain was Biden erased women. And I just thought, totally normal island. No, I just thought, obviously, women haven't been erased. In, oh, look, there's some women in the United States who still exist. I thought they'd been erased. I think there's a particular obsession in Britain which American feminists look at and people, you know, and they and they they think we've kind of people have gone unhinged. Most feminists in this country aren't like that, but for the, by the way, they're they're very passionate about supporting trans rights. I think there's a very vocal minority who get signal boosted by various media outlets who spend their entire life instead of thinking why have transphobic hate crimes quadrupled over the last few years? Why are trans people scared to use public toilets? Why are trans people being discriminated against in the workplace? Why are so many trans people scared of leaving their homes or flats in case they get abused on the streets? You know, they don't think of that. Instead, they get, they get whipped up into the equivalent of things in the 1990s, which was it's political correctness gone mad, can't say anything anymore, 
uh, where they'd go, where people, the Daily Mail would fixate on, on language. I remember they did that in the 90s all the time. No, I, I they'd go, no, they'd I go Harriet Harperson, very funny. Yeah, I, and, no, I, I agree. I, I agree that it was during the 90s, there was a lot of absolute fucking nonsense in, in the tabloids about things that weren't happening. But, you know, these attempts to, to kind of recalibrate language around some very crucial sort of biologically female identities. This this is happening. And I think that for the first time in my life, and maybe it's just I'm a 44-year-old bloke, you know, but you sort of go, oh, political critics has gone a bit mad. You know, like when, when companies are going, uh, you know, people who have periods, I think that there's such a wide percentage of people that would just think that was a bit insane. That it, 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 that discussion hasn't been had with a big enough part of society I to think... move to terminology like that. But the numbers game is is different, though. I mean, you you surprised me when we met when you said about the percentage of gay people. It was lower than I thought, and I know that the how many do you think it is? Well, I used to think it was one in ten, but that's you know what it makes me think. David Brent in the office. One in 10 seems a bit high. It is a bit high. It's not one in 10. I would say, look, obviously the number will go up because the more society is accepting, the less people. But I would say lesbian, gay, bisexual, um, probably 3%, maybe. 3%. So so that is, you know, that... The thing about that is it's still a lot higher than people, way, way, way higher than the amount of people. Well, we don't know. Obviously, more people come out as trans and society becomes more inclusive. But there is, it is, it is a lot, lot higher. And the reason I mean that is that, yeah, you talk about some of the, the, the negative characteristics that are ascribed to trans people and the predatory nature and all that. And, and I don't disagree on all of that. I think one of the difficulties in terms of getting society to come around and, and progress is whereas with gay people, everyone had a gay uncle, right? You know, a gay bloke. No, they didn't. Football club. Well, I don't have any gay relatives. You, know, you, you grew up in Stockport, very different up north, mate. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you. But down south, we was all, so you sort of knew gay people. You knew that men loved men and you knew that women loved women. I don't think a lot of people did know that. Well, look, look, I, I get experience, but I do think well, the problem is I grew up with people who got rejected by their parents over and over again because I mean, and that was still happening then, but but the simple kind of uh mental acceptance of, of this reality was based on a much higher sample size. So you were seeing more examples. I don't, I think this is really understating how, how widespread homophobia was in the 1980s. It was far worse than transphobia today. If you look at the British Social Attitude Survey, they ask each year, what your attitudes? And it was something like by 1987, and HIV AIDS had a lot to do with that. Oh, no, I don't, dis- I don't disagree about the AIDS. It was like the, va- no, what I mean is the vast majority of people thought it was either always or mostly wrong. And and it was only until the late, it was the late 90s when always or mostly wrong about homosexuality stopped being the majority of people in this country. It was so widespread and very, and you know, 3% or 2.5%. By the way, bear in mind, it was lower. It got bigger because more people came out. Yeah. And actually a lot of people hid their sexuality from their from their families. So actually a lot of people didn't even know they knew gay people. A lot of people still don't come out at work, by the way. And um, so I actually, guess, I guess then your point is about it, it did take quite a long time for people to change their attitudes. Maybe that's one of the problems with the trans debate now is that there's a lot of the pace of progress of thinking on social media runs way, way ahead of what maybe wider society is capable of. Because as you as I know, a lot of people aren't getting that hot housed online debate every day. It's not even to the point that where they go, well, I've picked a side on this. They haven't been included in the discussion. I get, yeah, but I think the problem, the way I look at it, I've got a different vantage point to you because I think the people who go on about trans rights and trans issues all the time are people who are opposed to it. And that forces the rest of us to say something because we're like, if we don't speak out when every, like these newspapers are going on about it all the time, then it's just a one-sided story of one side going, oh, here's a sexual, they're sexual predators. They're preying on children. Uh, you know, there's some weird freak show going on, like gay people are always portrayed as. So then we have to talk. Do you think, you know, trans people don't want to spend their life talking about trans rights in the same way as a gay man. I don't want to spend my life talking about gay rights. And I have to talk about it less than people before me did. The reason, you know, in the 1990s, gay people didn't want to talk about gay rights, but they were like, all right, we've got a different age of consent. We can't 
settled down with our loved ones. We can be legally turned away by bed and breakfasts uh, and shops. Uh, we can't adopt children. Obviously, we don't want to talk about this, but society treats us differently. And for trans people, they're like, do you know what? I don't want to talk about trans rights or trans issues, but I keep getting yelled at in the streets or I'm actually scared physically to use a toilet or uh, I'm being beaten up. One in four of them are homeless uh, when they're young. And you just kind of think, you know, we shouldn't have to keep talking about this. But the only way we stop talking about it is if people accept it. And I just think most people aren't talking. When people always go, this is the thing I always say about the trans rights. Oh, yeah, that'll win back the Red Wall. What do they think? People are this character of the Red Wall. They're not talking about or thinking about trans rights. If you're not, I've never knocked on a door. I've knocked on thousands of doors. Yeah. No one's brought it up. It's but, not a thing. It's but, but, people but, are obsessed but, with it in the spectator and all the rest of it, but they're not talking about it. Well, I, agree, I agree with you to a point that there is a disproportionate focus on it and that some of that, as you say, comes from the right. I suppose the difficulty in terms of the real world is that we're recalibrating a moral code in terms of how we talk about people. And that, to me, that's all I care about, is that whether that language, in the same way as it has with race and homosexuality... This is words. Yeah, this is the thing, people talk about there, the there, left there, obsessed with language and we're offended all the time. But there is a I jeopardy. Just think the right are just offended by all these things which they shouldn't be offended about. But there is a jeopardy in using the wrong words and how quickly you could be portrayed as bigoted. Just as we start to bring it in here, like just a couple of fun questions, really. Who's your favourite Tory? Who'd... <laughs> uh, oh, my God. Mm, yeah. Nice closed question, isn't it? You have to you have to pick one. I mean, and not you can't say me, just say so you know. Let's get that out of the way. Oh right. Oh uh, I thought you meant an MP. Oh no, a guy called David Skelton, who I know he used to work at Policy Exchange. He works for Google now. Oh, that probably was about. Uh but he he's written books on blue collar Toryism. Interesting. I like it, he's a really nice guy. And oh. who would you rather have a drink with? Ken Clark or Peter Mandelson? it's <laughs> a good question right <laughs> I've interviewed Peter Mandelson and I'm a bit still a bit I, he's he's quite scary I think maybe probably Ken Clark I would have a pint with I don't know it'd be quite I mean you can imagine I'm, in my head he's in a kind of old man's pub in the Shires yeah, probably. Yeah, you know what the funny thing is about, like you know, the left have, have slowly taken to King Clark. Certainly, the, the sort of middle class liberal left. I did not. I wrote articles slagging off Tory Remainers. I'm not having that. Well, there, but there certainly were people on the left that started to warm to King Clark. If you mm -hmm. drank with him for an hour, you would be reminded that he is still right wing. Because is that not just that. Uh, I, like I, one of the things I wrote, I wrote this article about Tory Remainers, and I pointed out his tobacco links, for example. Yeah. <laughs> like he was a tobacco lobbyist. Yeah, no. I also he pushed forward NHS privatization. Yeah, I'm not one of those people. I look, that's because I wasn't a hardcore Remainer. That wasn't my thing. I'm not, I don't, Brexit wasn't my thing. I'm a Eurosceptic who thought Remain was better on, on the whole. Uh, and it wasn't my bag. And when people started going, oh, we think these toys are good now, like Anna Subri, who supported all these terrible policies, like the bedroom tax, or whatever, I was like, I'm absolutely not. And I campaigned against Anna Subri and I got all these people going, oh, you're a disgrace. She's good. It's like, no, she's a Tory. Tory's going to Tory and I'm not a Tory. So that's the end of that one. Well, listen, man, you know, as this podcast is about, is I always say, I, I want to speak to anybody where we can have a constructive and interesting conversation. And I appreciate, you know, given my brand of comedy, uh, you coming on and had that chat. Um, just a last plug for the podcast. What is it? Where should people go to get it? Why should they listen to it? Uh, what this podcast? No, your podcast. Oh, my podcast. Oh, right. Sorry. Oh, this is a problem. If you was a capitalist, you'd have been going, Jeff. Just before you go, I'm gonna fucking flood the life. <laughs> Either go to my YouTube channel, just type in Owen Jones on YouTube, or just Google my podcast on Google. But listen, man, I, you know, I reckon the thing is, is that you're, you're doing that thing that I, I love in politics, is that you're speaking to a wide range of people who used to be Tories. No, it's an honour, mate. Honestly, big, big honour. Um, Owen Jones, thank you so much for coming no, on. No, it's a pleasure, mate. It's a pleasure. Thank you, mate. Okay, so that is the end of the interview there uh, with Owen Jones. Plenty to talk about there. Listen, I know that you're going to want to have 
comebacks on that. Uh, if you've got any thoughts or anything you'd like me to pick up on in next week's episode, what most people think, uk at gmail.com. But look, you know, we don't necessarily see eye to eye on politics, but I appreciate, appreciate him taking the time to come on a show uh, with somebody whose views he doesn't necessarily agree with. And you know, his podcast is out there. There's some interesting characters appearing on it. Do check it out if that's your thing. Okay, let's have a couple of letters to finish this week's show. Okay, we haven't had... Uh, so in last week's show, this got a bit of traction actually, is I was... Somebody had asked why it is that you have to pick up dog shit. I mean, there's a bit of sort of like picking up animal shit theme to this week. I mean, a lot of podcasts wouldn't even think to go in this area, but I see... I see it. I see. I see. I see having you. I see a niche, a shitty little niche there. Uh, it says, "Good morning, Jeff. Thank you very much for the podcast this week. Sounds a bit good, Sergeant Majory tone to the beginning on the subject of horse riders not having to clean up after their animals. I asked this question of a mounted old Bill when Pompey played Wigan a few years ago. Apparently, as horses do not eat meat and dogs do, there is no requirement for the horse deposits to be cleared, as the horse cack." biodegrades uh wow so that is from andrew maudsley is that bollocks is he just blagging me to see if i'll read something out a bit like fucking ron burgundy there just fuck you san diego oh and by the way your horse can shit anywhere um it's horse so dogs eat meat uh, so it's just what so it's all a, a bit organic but there's got to be a limit to that do you know what i mean i mean it biodegrades it doesn't like biodegrade quickly does it I don't know. I don't know who who gets rid of horseshit, or is it just a process of cars going over it? Is that is that bollocks? You know, if if you've got skin in the game with the the horseshit argument, are, are you accepting that dogs eat meat? Not all dogs do eat meat now, though. That you get some dog owners that are, that are vegans and try and impose their vegan diet on dogs. Like you're not. This a different species. Do you know what I mean? Like you can't. Dogs will dogs will try and fuck your leg. Right, so trying to to get dogs to take a moral, <laughs> a moral decision on eat on eat. Imagine what a weird thing to do to just say to this animal that we've domesticated and and removed a lot of its primitive elements. Oh, you know one thing that reminds me you of your 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 past where you actually had freedom. Uh, we're we're taking that away, and we know you're a dog, and essentially you're from wolves who are hunters. But look what you've got from tea tonight. Yeah, that's right, curly kale quick letter here we haven't done one of these for a while very simple uh who'd win in a political fight boris johnson or keir starmer now i i would, I would have thought we'd have done that but but i couldn't find any record of having done it i mean it's they are the the leaders i mean one thing about keir is he's not is he, this is the thing boris is this who's this from s dutton sean sean dutton um, he's that Boris, he quite likes his hair to be dishevelled, do you know what I mean? So he doesn't, we, we've seen what he can do to Japanese kids on a rugby pitch. I mean, like I always mention that, but if you, uh, if you haven't seen it, just watch it. It's, it's not right to laugh at, but it's sort of fun watching Boris Johnson rugby tackle a small kid. I can't explain why it's fun, but it just is. Um, so it's Keir Starmer, now Keir Starmer's definitely in better physical shape. You know, the man, he does marathons, he runs, he's... They're both about 5'7", tail of the tape. Boris Johnson, I would imagine, is hitting harder when he does hit. Maybe he's a bit like Andy Ruiz against Anthony Joshua. Maybe, you know, the show pony against the the scrapper. Um, but Keir Starmer's hair, is Keir going to want to get his hair messy? I mean, it does look... His hair does look... He looks like he uses that kind of mousse that people used in their hair before CFCs were banned. <laughs> um yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I think Boris is, is bigger. He's got more power. I think it'd be a good fight. Do you know what I mean? You know when you get two boxers that basically box the same and it's a bit boring? I think that, I think that Starmer... Here's, okay, here's how it's going to go down. Starmer is going to outpoint Boris Johnson for eight rounds, okay? He's going to work the body, but Boris has got a lot more layers of fat there, so he's not really making the damage he thinks he is. Massive haymaker from Boris Johnson in the eighth round. Starmer, knocked out cold, and then all the Corbynistas basically <laughs> grabbed the mic and claimed that Corbyn would have won, even though he's old as shit. Okay, that is this week's podcast. Um, we will be back next week with a topical episode, but for now, as ever, I'm going to read out all the new five-star reviews on iTunes. Okay, first one from Jamie Hornsey. 
Jamie Hornsey, really enjoying this podcast, good banter, and at times, thought-provoking stuff, even with his accent mutilations. What are you fucking talking about, Jamie? I'm an absolute master, man of a thousand voices, none of them accurate. Um, it's from DD Girl, great episode, I've given up listening to the BBC Today programme, and this is the perfect way to get balanced and funny news. Um, <laughs> and she also likes the mental health stuff. Look, I, look, I think Radio 4 has its issues. I would say that if you're getting your news from me, that's not necessarily healthy either. Uh, Lorraine the Pain. Uh, love this podcast. When this, when the week feels awful with what's going on, I listen to this while doing the housework. Good girl, Lorraine, as nature intended. And <laughs> pushing his luck. Uh, we got Plez333. Free, free, free. Yeah, all right, Plez. Yeah, beneath Jeff's grizzled and hard face appearance beats the... What's... Grizzled and half... Fucking hell, mate. Uh, beats the heart of a kind and deeply sensitive poet. Wow. I don't know how fucking stoned you were, Plez, but uh, I appreciate it. Uh, this is from Bernie, 1116. Coming from under a labour-voting family from the northwest. It took me a while to bring myself to listen to the podcast. I see I'm, I moved from Yorkshire over the Pennines there. Any accent experts will listen uh, would have noticed. Oh, and keep it coming. I've got fuck all else to do at the moment. Uh, this is from Original Sinner. Top podcast, never miss one. Don't always agree with everything, but I like to scare passers-by when I shout at the radio when in the car on my own. Look, we're in a pandemic in a lockdown. That sort of behaviour is fairly standard. Uh, this is from Gareth89. Jeff offers a light-hearted overview of the week's topical news with the occasional guest thrown in for good measure. Funny and informative. It's a staple of my podcast listening. Oh, hang on. And there we go. That said... One must bear in mind that a typical episode is effectively a middle-aged man decrying the zeitgeist whilst locked away in the spare bedroom <laughs> surrounded by Star Wars paraphernalia. Look, there's truth in what you say, mate. This, these lockdowns for me, I felt like uh, a sort of middle-aged fucking Charles de Gaulle at times. <laughs> Charles de Gaulle, just sitting there in my little bunker. And uh, the real shock is that there's anybody that listened. But look, I know it's getting harder this lockdown, everyone keeps saying, oh, I think this one's been harder than most. I think I think it's almost like having kids in it. You go, oh, I don't remember it being this hard. Yeah, it's because your brain has actually shut out the memory of the last lockdown because through basic self-preservation and PTSD. So lockdown three is fucking tough, but you will get through it. There will be an end. Things will get better. Either that or we'll take up arms against the government. Have a good week. Yeah.